Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Anupam Satyashil. Anupam has 20 plus years of international experience in entrepreneurship, financial and risk management, valuation, mergers and acquisitions, due diligence, operational efficiency, creating and implementing upon strategic structures and roadmaps. He also has world-class track record of best practices. Anupam, thank you very much for being my guest today. Hi, Megan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You have more than 20 years of international experience in entrepreneurship, financial and risk management, valuation, M&A, due diligence, operational efficiency, and creating and implementing upon strategic structures and roadmaps. And today we're going to be discussing some of your strategies for success. I'm super excited to learn from you. So let's get started. Sounds good. First, as always, let's start with you and your story as to how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. So, Megan, I turned 50 last year. So 20 plus years have almost become more like 30 closing on it, I might say. Big milestone. Yeah. The world seems a bit different now. I keep saying that half done, half to go. (laughs) Um, The more exciting half is left. You know, people like Warren Buffett inspired me. They're going strong at 92, not the kind who wants to retire. So moving on to my present, I'll go in the reverse chronological order. Since 2012, um, I have tried to build Occam's Advisory into a multifaceted practice which focuses on small businesses. We're talking about start from um, revenue size, $5 million, give or take, going all the way to, we typically avoid going to companies who are more than a billion dollars. That's kind of too big for us. And our single key focus for our company's advisory is to look at the efficiency of the business across how efficient the capital structure is, how efficient they are with their taxation. and Probably least focused by us is how efficient is their payment processing. So a dollar that they actually have a revenue, what actually they collect. In some cases, that's a big difference, but mostly it is not that big of a focus for our clientele. The evolution of the company has been through my journey, I might say, uh, starting solo in 2012 after I quit my job as a vice president of portfolio risk at Barclays. Um, which essentially was legacy Lehman Brothers. And then exploring, starting investment banking, going into payment processing, then diversifying into insurance. We did personal finance for four years. We quit doing that a year and a half ago. And all along, we continued our focus on M&A, which essentially is any investment banker's bread and butter. I did before uh, Occam's spent seven years on Wall Street, 2005 to 2012. And for those of us who are old enough to have seen that time in history, it was almost like a complete life cycle. You join Wall Street when everything was gangbusters and you gradually settle down to something which is flatlining to ticking up 
just after a crazy storm. Uh, we all remember that history of Wall Street. Um, I did work for some marquee names like, um, as I said, Barclays, a bit with um, Merrill Lynch, which was Bank of America by then, Scotia Capital. And I spent some time with Fidelity Investments, which was the other side of the world. Prior to that, I was in a wonderful place called New York University School of Business, two years of full-time MBA, learning some really insightful stuff from people like Ashwatha Modrun and a couple of Nobel Prize winning professors. The other 10 years or little less than that of my professional life was uh, working in corporates. Um, first four years in India, Siemens Telecom in 95 to 98, which was the golden days of telecom business. Then for a dot-com startup, and uh, then a couple of years at a technology staffing company in New Jersey, which was uh, my last job before I went to NYU. I'm sure uh, people must have fallen asleep by now, so we can switch topics and get back to uh, your asking more questions. <laughs> um, Occam's, am I pronouncing it right? Occam's Advisory. Yep. What inspired you? to go out on your own and start that up? I love that question. Um, I love that question because when we look at investment bankers, they either get pushed out or they have some kind of the monk who sold his Ferrari kind of moment. Who's like, you know, this is not for me. It wasn't that crazy, but it just was the backdrop of my seven years. Like you go in into a crazy hot market and you lose your job, which happened to pretty much every investment banker that I know of at that time. Yeah. And then you come back stronger, which luckily I was able to do, and then realize that this is not the game I want to play. That sounds fancy, but the straight heartfelt truth, Megan, is that investment banking is for certain kind of people, and I could do it, I could do it longer. But the absence of into an ownership, for lack of a better word, like on a deal team, whether you're vice president or you're even a managing director, you're a part of a bigger game plan. Um, I always wanted to have something which I have greater ownership of. And being in small, medium businesses was more likely than not situation because um, that's what I saw growing up. My father had a small business. Um, there was a community of people when I grew up in India, small steel city called Tata Nagar, where Tata's built a steel plant. You see the trading community and you see their challenges. And it's not that I didn't see that in my day job before I went to NYU or in general interacting with people. It seems that there are two or three different kinds of um, swim lanes. The one for large corporations, where they have access to all kinds of fancy advice and expertise. Then there are the middle of the pool people who at least have some access. And then typically small, medium businesses were so clueless um, about what is right about their business, just kind of getting by. And the people who borrow at the 45% rate and they don't understand why can't they be profitable, pretty difficult to be profitable with that kind of cost of capital or massive inefficiencies with any part of their, with their processes, payment processing, just operating leverage. So I was like, yeah, let's let's be missionaries here and try and see if we can make sense of bringing Fortune 500 expertise to small, medium businesses. And everyone told me that you're wasting your time. It's not going to happen. I said, yeah, we'll see. We'll try and fail. We won't fail before starting. 
And um, I think last 10 to 12 years have been very unusual in the life cycle for small businesses because, for instance, small business lending has gone from not being kind of there at all to being a pretty significant capital deployment for most funds who want to be playing. Um, and then, of course, uh, I mean, we can get into many other macroeconomic trends, but in general, um, COVID, of course, changed so much about how businesses look at themselves. Many or most inefficient ones got blown away. And what, the ones who are left standing are more resilient ones. So that's kind of the synopsis of what got me going and how I have seen this evolve in the course of last uh, 10 plus years. And talk to me about your clients. What, what kind of problems do they come to you with and, and how do they find you? So answer the second question first. It's easier one to answer. <laughs> Um, we find them, they find us through one of digital media, email outreach, but mostly through referrals. Um, more than half our clients come to us because somebody's happy with what we have done for them and they can't stop saying that, please go try this place. It's like, you know, when you go eat the best, whatever you like to eat, sushi, chicken, you know, sandwich, soup in some place, like you tell people, yeah, go try that place. It's amazing. Right? That's the easiest customers they ever get. So most of our clients, at least a good 50 to 60%, come through very happy clients. Yeah, that speaks a lot about... That speaks a lot about... Luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, um, as the classical definition goes, when preparation meets opportunity. Yeah. So uh, Megan jokes apart, I do believe that I'm extremely lucky. Outcomes Advance is extremely lucky that we happen to try and do something at a time when I believe... Um, starts aligning and small, medium business centric advisory services will have a bright future, particularly if you bring in the element of digitization that we hyper-emphasize on. Um, going back to the first part of what kind of service we provide, like most aspiring entrepreneurs, I'm a huge fan of Steve Jobs. And uh, if I'm quoting him right, he always said that most customers don't know what they need, what they want. And I firmly believe in that because people come to us with problems like, yeah, we have been in business for five years, but we can't seem to generate a profit. We don't know why. And it seems like uh, the greatest mystery to them till we look at the capitalist structure and say, yeah, there are factoring arrangement where all the potential profits are being sucked away by a factoring company. Or they have, in general, they say we want to grow, but we don't know how to grow. And then you start looking under the hood and you find any and many kinds of issues. Mostly businesses come to us saying we need capital. We have a great business model. And if we got capital, it'll be all fine. And you and I both know, hopefully, that that's never true. A great business model is never short on capital. So from finding capital to looking at their operating efficiency to getting them you know, better tax plans, uh, most of them are structured in a manner that they will keep paying a lot of taxes which they don't need to pay. But the general theme um, that we see is that it's a chronic lack of expertise about a business which they should know much more about. But it's not like they don't know the core line. They don't know the accounting, the taxation, the capital efficiency, or the easiest source of capital. Like some of them haven't heard the name SBA before, which will be you know mind-boggling for any 
person like you or me that you know how come we don't know about SPA. So that's that's the flavor of it. Of course, we can dig deeper into any one thing that you like to go deeper into. Are most of your clients technology companies, or are, is it pretty industry agnostic? So I'm chuckling because when people say I'm industry agnostic, I say, okay, so the, why do you tell me that you don't have any expertise? And I, I apply the same test to ours <laughs> as well. We have um, more expertise in service lines. Within that, we would say that um, technology, e-commerce, healthcare businesses, um, anything which is not equipment heavy, so manufacturing, petrochemicals, defense, and those companies tend to be larger by definition. You don't see many defense companies less than a billion dollars, automobile, and we can keep going, right? infrastructure. So given the fact we're SMB-centric, unless they start having SMBs who are doing, you know, drilling in Arctic Ocean or Arctic, whatever it's called, we, we will continue to have clients in service industries. And that's where we thrive. Now, when it comes to saying our clients are predominantly tech companies, I have a bit of a radical view, which is I say that every company, every company in this world today is a software company. Either they accept it or they will perish in 20 years. Now, it's maybe a radical statement and you can uh, grill me on that, but that's the way I think about businesses and more or less is playing out of the script. And you mentioned that most of your clients are somewhere under a billion dollars. What is it about that billion dollar mark that kind of differentiates someone who needs your service versus someone who probably doesn't? You won't believe it, but you are the first person who asked me this question ever. And wow. I'll, I'll say, you know, that's, that's a great question. It's an, an incredible question. I'll be starting by trying to be funny. The way inflation is, we may have to raise that bar, right? Yeah, that's true. But in a more serious note, there is a point at which the owners stop being involved in the business and they have professional management. So I will bring in a very respectable person into this equation. His name is Ashwat Damodharan, and he is called Dean of Valuation. He's the person who taught me in corporate finance and valuation when I went to NYU. He has this amazing ability of demystifying the most complex things. And that's my preferred way of thinking about things. I feel that owner-operated companies, and I might get some backlash for this, are by and large more inefficient than professional management-run companies. One would think that owners should be able to care more about their capital or cost of capital or any other efficiency, have it more profitable. But I think the fundamental issue that nobody can be Swiss knife, and Swiss knife is a knife, it's not a human being, and most entrepreneurs think that they're swift naive. That is a fundamental problem with businesses. There's a great book called E-Myth and E-Myth Revisited. You might have heard or read about it. And hopefully our listeners have. It breaks it out that why a functional expertise has nothing to do with somebody being able to set up and run a business. That's a whole different skill set. So there's some point at which owners start involving professional management, at some point, they are not the decision makers anymore. It's not a perfect science, but in most service businesses, that number is somewhere around a billion dollars or earlier. And when it's a purely professional management, which is running a company and the owners are out of the equation, I think they already have got someone like us looking at their issues, whether there is, you know, 
the CEO's buddy who worked for McKinsey and is freelancing with them or some other sort of expertise they already have roped in. So we feel that if we are called in, we'll be competing against someone either larger or more trusted by the existing management. So that's a space where we don't um, mind going, but our value add might not be as trusted. Yeah. So hopefully I answered your question. Yeah, that makes sense. And where did Occams come from? Where where did that name originate? Three and a half months of scratching my head. What do we call ourselves? <laughs> the French wife said, have you heard of Occams Razor? I said, uh-huh. she said, and she explained to me what it did. And it kind of hit a chord because you know, keep it simple, stupid. I mean, I'm calling myself stupid here. It's a, it's a nice thing, right? So I went and read about this and pretty much loved it. Now, it also was funny enough that Occam's.com was taken and uh, I wanted to be a little intellectual in our approach. So we named ourselves Occam's Paradigm and we had a purple logo. Most entrepreneurs do these things, right? Professionally developed, nice looking logo with a discount by a friend. Um, sound familiar? And we launched with that. Still, in about three to four years, 70% of people were calling us paradigm, 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 not paradigm, but anything. And we said, this is kind of, we can, like, you know, this is not branding friendly. So we changed it to Occam's Advisory. And we have heard about other names, I would be honest and admit, on and off. But we keep going back to that. If anything, we'd like to call ourselves Occam's versus being Occam's advisory, because that kind of gives a feeling that you're an advisory business. And COVID has made that business less attractive than ever before. Even McKinsey's and BCG's are scratching their head to find a different business model. So who are we? Um, but yeah, as of now, we are Occam's advisory, and that's the history of our name. I love that story. So, can you share with us some of the some of your favorite sex success stories that you've had with your clients over the years? Wow, how much time do you have? <laughs> I know, I'm sure that's a big ask, but then I was like, how much time do you have? Because I can go through dozens of them. I'm sure. But in all sincerity, Megan, there are many, many recent stories for something very simple, which. I'll get a bit into politics, kind of, and you will see where it's coming from. When COVID started, and we had things like PPP, almost a trillion dollar, I won't say fiasco, but kind of poor ROI program launched by government in a half-baked manner. Totally understand the time wasn't on the government side. Something quick had to be done. But the way $350 billion disappeared in a week and going to mostly people who didn't need money, didn't start the pandemic relief on the right note. Um, I'll get to the point pretty quickly. And then they had second round and on the PPP. And along the way, there are programs called EIDL and FFCR and then ERC. Funny enough, I think if we had just launched ERC in correct way, that is the only program people needed, right? I mean, ultimately, they were saying retain your employees and we will incentivize that. Um, now that... The PPP gravy train has left and the ideal sort of history. We have, um, in the course of last two years, helped many businesses who are either struggling to stay in business or have closed their doors and gone home. The owners have given up on their entrepreneurial career to claim the employee retention credit 
And when the checks arrive, we have seen them cry on camera, send us gifts and thank us and say we are God sent. And we're like, this is so strange. This was supposed to be your money. There should have been better education. Yeah, I think there's a lot of businesses out there that have no idea what the ERC program even is. And what is worse, Megan, is that there are, as always, many mushrooming opportunistic operators who don't know what ERC is funny enough, but they've heard about it and they're trying to do what they do very well, make a quick buck. Yeah. So I won't get into tearing them apart. That's buyer be aware was always the rule. But this is what I started saying in the beginning, it might get political. When PPP disbursed $874 billion, the overall cost was $953 billion. So $80 billion were just given out to banks. Of course, they never have money, right? They need money. From last crisis to now, banks always need money. For 5% for just cutting a check and turning it back and getting reimbursed from SBA. Thank you, Mr. President and Congress. They were very happy about that. ERC, nobody's advertising except the guys who, as I said earlier, don't know what ERC is. While last time around, the banks told each of their customers, would it make so much more sense if banks, even today, were telling all their customers that these are government-approved ERC agencies, go talk to them. But then we all know that uh, you know, government efficiency is an oxymoron. So without Definitely. getting too much into that, um, I feel that Again, I kind of hijacked your topic, sorry, but um, my thing was there have been at least three to four dozen situations when people are overwhelmed with what they got, way more money than they thought they're eligible for, knowing that we provide them five-year audit support, knowing that it's as close to risk-free, however taxable. Um, thank you, money from government, which has gone into saving many jobs, saving many careers, families. And more for industries like restaurants and um, what I call real businesses, uh, medical practices, smaller ones, home healthcare companies who really had given up on being in business. That thus had been many stories. But let's not forget that you asked me for the longer part. There have been, I would talk, I'll talk about three kinds of themes. Uh, there have been businesses who get between 85 to 92 cents on a dollar because that's how much the payment processing costs them. We have a large law firm that we have been supporting for last um, close to three years. And they did not know where the margin was going. I mean, law firms make money, but they don't make money that they can lose 12% and still be crazy profitable. Till they understood the first principles of risk management and liquidity management in uh, payment processing. And now they don't move an inch in anything, um, even areas outside payment processing, because they saw how deeply we try to understand the critical facts of any discipline that we try to bring to our clients. So their local and their principal, I mean, he and I end up talking mostly at 12 or 1 in the morning when I'm about to wrap my day and he has finally found time because we all are very busy doing things. That um, has been a very satisfying story for us. Uh, there was one different story about a business where they could not find good sales talent. Uh, funny enough, they were growing business and their salespeople were like revolving doors. They will come in and go, come in and go. And this reflects on how small business owners don't think about any macro factors or real expertise, even though there are increasingly more resources out there. They had a pretty crazy uh, commission structure, which was capped. I don't know why it was capped. 
And then we worked with them. We literally had to just look at the marketplace. And the owner was very generous at heart, but I didn't have the idea executed. When everything fell in place, they, in their 20, sorry, 18th to 19th year of the operation to 30th year, they went 10x. I mean, companies don't go 10x in their 20s. They go 10x in their you know, seventh, eighth year or the teenage. It was uh, the three founders couldn't believe that it's possible. They were like, my God, this was holding us back. I said, nothing else is changing your business. But if you don't have a good commission structure in a sales-driven organization, they can't go very far. Megan, I can have many more stories, but this is, we're talking about people who, like lawyers or two-decade uh, entrepreneurs, it's not that they didn't survive. They survived well. They were about $20 million, um, close to 25 actually. Now they're approaching half a billion in 12 years. So wow. these are the things which make me more convinced that there has to be a better distribution, which aka technology for what we do. So our massive emphasis on how to productize our offerings, how to digitize our offerings, how to make it available on demand, omni-channel. So it's almost like uh, my, my crazy vision, if I can say it's crazy, is that how do we make professional services work like an Apple or an Amazon, where everything can be digitized and delivered to people's, of course, the human touch is super critical. But if we could do that, I think someday we'll have a more fun um, podcast when I can tell you about how much difference we have made and how far we have reached. Those are amazing stories. I'm just curious, like when you take on a new client, where do you start? It seems like boiling the ocean. Like, why aren't you growing? And that it seems like there's a million different reasons that could be true. We have a reasonably well-trained um, team of what we call intake, as in salespeople who get first feed on our clients. However, this is where and the great books on this topic, like Entrepreneur's Dilemma and things like that, where you wish you could clone yourself. But Megan, it should be easy to agree that expertise can't be grown overnight. This is something which you only hone and inculcate and perfect and continue to improve on through your lifetime. And people like me who are very curious and some of my partners who are very driven were able to get a gate of what is not right pretty quickly if we are doing the first or second conversation. But then we can't be doing every conversation. And that's where, Megan, we are trying to really scratch our heads as much as we can and as quickly as we can deploy that how to use artificial intelligence. Like we have got chatbots um, right now working where you, our prospective clients or existing clients can go in and get a whole bunch of information. They can be interviewed by um, I won't say fully by bots, but partly by technology, partly by human help. Um, and we we try to gather enough information to see this is the biggest problem. So the 80-20 is one of our very famous um, focus areas that let's solve something which is most critical for your business growth or survival, not try to... And, and entrepreneurs are pretty ADHD, if I might say that. They want to focus on something which should be 10th item on their list just because it appeals more to them or they think they can do it quicker. There's no point solving a problem which will make a 3% difference to your bottom line. I mean, a 3% is great, but if it's a 15% problem, let's focus on that first. But again, you, you can see that this is a lack of structured thinking and we continue to think as to how do we 
how do we just automate the heck out of it so people don't have to rely? I mean, how many people can we hire? 5,000, 10,000? But we can't be everywhere. But systems can be in any places, in many places. There's this fine line between try to do everything, uh, like people talk about SAP, for instance, just everything for larger companies, or Salesforce, which is very versatile, and being actually effective. So if a system gets too complicated, it's not effective. If it's too simplistic, it's not effective either. So that magical mid-balance where they can give us information, we can get a quick pulse and act quickly and make a change. We're asking for the skies, but well, you know, everybody can be ambitious. We should try to be. I'm curious, like where in this talent market today, where are you finding the best and brightest to come work with you? And what does that look like to you? Megan, I love that question. And I love, again, it's unfortunate that it took a COVID-19 kind of global pandemic to make this happen. But, you know, just like we look back on human history and say, why couldn't you guys get this? Like, sun is, um, earth is not the center of the universe for decades. For centuries, we believe that. It's one of those feelings, at least for me, that why should a knowledge company ever have to rely on people in one location only? But now we know that virtual first is a game changer. Technology first is a game changer. So internally, we have this thing called 3T, that technology, talent, and timing. So get tech right, think tech first, as in like, you know, don't think that I can make 15 copies. How do I hack? How do I get it? No, you get the point. Like, how do we automate everything? Well, this talent, we are very selective about people we get in. But regarding the question of talent, we can shop worldwide, right? Somebody, we have people working in, from Dominican Republic, from Mumbai, from Toronto, from wherever. I mean, like all kinds of people, Latin America, it doesn't really matter, uh, Africa, that where they are. Our continuous quest is that we should be able to have transparent metrics through which we can see who is making progress and who is not. And we hyper-emphasize to that end on timing. That Now, not timing just isn't like you know, do something in the time provided to you, but are you actually optimizing your work output in a way that's most useful to everybody else around you? And it's a bit of a, an emerging art and science, but we have some really good thought leaders. I'm very grateful that way in our company who are helping us almost get more often than not, that magical combination, right? That do what is important, do it in a way where it can make the biggest contribution. And Megan, I marvel how much um, magic is in that. Like a right solution three weeks later might be 20% less useful than three weeks earlier. Because organizations go through a critical point of, whatever you call it, it's an inflection point, you call it a point of not turning around or turning around. And we think that as I say, the harder I, we work, the luckier we get. We have been obsessing over how to get that right, and that's been helping us. So I kind of rumbled into other topics, um, but your question was more about talent. So virtual first, trying to hyper-deploy technology and not really worrying about where people are as long as they actually work and not kind of just show up. So that's our thing. Virtual first, maximize technology. And hire quickly. I say it with an element of salt that fire even quicker. We are not that good at firing people. And I don't like the word fire. It's more about having the clear conversation that if you can't contribute, then you should move 
away you voluntarily and let somebody else contribute. And that's, you didn't ask me about this, Megan, but sometimes when people have left us, they have come back and personally thanked me two years later that I'm so glad I had a conversation with you because I actually got a clear idea as to what one should try to do in the job apart from getting a paycheck because that's very myopic. You didn't ask me that, but that's kind of an important thing to us that if somebody is not working out for us, we have a very clear conversation, not give them three quarters to figure things out. Say, but it's not working out for you. You're not cut out for this. It was a hiring mistake or the world had changed. Let's give you a better chance of succeeding versus trying to fit the round peg in square hole or whatever else it's called. Yeah. So long answer, but hopefully I answered more than what you asked for. Yeah, no. First of all, I... I'm thankful for the pandemic opening up the world to labor. Um, Like you said, labor, good people are everywhere. Um, And also, yeah, I really love what you said about it not necessarily being firing someone. It's more like helping them find a better fit in life. I always think like when someone gets fired for lack of a better word it's because there's a better opportunity somewhere else for them it's always seen as something negative but it's it's not necessarily completely and it's like rejection people get rejected in anything uh, in their life they in the moment the impulse reaction is to blame somebody or feel bad but if you can just take a moment to realize that there's something better out there because it wasn't working out for a good reason Megan, I, I appreciate you putting it very directly that there's good talent everywhere out there. But maybe not on this call, but some other time, I would like to understand from you that how do we tap into that? Like of India right now, and there are so many amazing people who I think could be very helpful to us in many ways. This is kind of like talent bubbling out from all corners. Yeah. But... You know, you can't boil the ocean. You used that term earlier in our conversation. You have to find a mechanism to harness that incredible energy. Though probably the largest pool of talent in 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 the world, in any country, the largest pool, where maybe whatever the count is, 30, 40 million people are out there who potentially can be a target. But you guys probably have mastered that art. So I would love to talk about that to you some other time. But for now, absolutely, there's... Yeah, I do feel that the professional knowledge workers will have a different life after pandemic forever. And just like I have a feeling that the financial systems we are living in right now, didn't ask me that, but again, just kind of bringing it here. The way inflation is, the way dollar's dominance is being questioned, the way the world is shaping, maybe we're looking at with cryptos and things like that, a new world order from where how money is going to be managed. So between people being decentralized and money being decentralized, maybe we'll have a different world in five to 10 to 15 years. So that's all the thing which keeps me night up at night that, you know, we're a dollar-based company. Is it as secure as it was 10 years ago? I don't know. I'm sure nobody knows, but there are questions to be asked. And likewise, that because... The talent pool is so widely accessible to us. It's widely accessible to our competition as well. So how do we become a better employer? How do we homogenize people's contributions and find a currency more capable than ours or output to 
balance people working in different parts of world. Should you pay people based on where they are located is not a solid logic anymore because people want to relocate to lower cost areas to, you know, the whole drill. Yeah. But again, very fascinating topic. Yeah, no, it's off topic too. But I think the pandemic was an opportunity for a lot of things to change for the better. And I often wonder, like, how long is it going to take for companies to fall back into their bad habits? Like, I'm, I, I don't understand why some businesses are calling people back into the office five days a week. To me, that just doesn't make sense. But that's for a different day yeah, as well. Ask the question. Yes, please. So a little anecdote, I was talking to the principal of this um, CPA firm, I won't take his name, well-established firm, um, and he said, funny enough, I approached him because we have somebody in our team who has CPA academics done, but she doesn't have the work experience with an accounting firm to have a public license. She loves working for us, but we're not a public accounting firm. We don't do audit, we don't do many things, which CPAs, like the public CPAs do. So I said, can you help her with that? He said, you know, we need people. Don't you worry that she might just leave you and come work for us? I said, listen, if our people could be forced that easily, I'll take that risk. No problem at all. So it's going to become a funny thing. Then he said, I'm, I'm impressed that you have people who would not leave you and you know they won't leave you. But he was talking about his problems. He said that he has an accountant in some part of the country who works remotely. He said, I can swear on my first born to NCS two twins that... He does two jobs. And I was like, so why didn't you let him go? He said, but then, and he had an aha moment on a video call. He was like, I said, listen, buddy, if it's not working anyway, <laughs> what's the point in having that false sense of security that you have an employee who does not contribute? With a, a good laugh at that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's it's a strange thing, right? That we think as an employee who is not there, he's doing something else, or she's doing something else. And if we can demystify that mismatch, then we might have a better world. Yeah, that's very true. Um, So you're obviously a lifelong learner. Um, I can always appreciate that because I like to think of myself as one as well. But how are you making sure that you're on top of industry trends and developments as far as entrepreneurship and and being a business leader? Jeez, uh... The world is always changing, as we've been discussing the last half hour. Um, The change, of course, as the cliche goes, is the only constant. But the pace of change is what is throwing most uninitiated entrepreneurs off, I would say, in the post-COVID world. This was a McKenzie research, which I love to read, by the way, that in the 22 months of COVID, which everybody is like, said beginning, like last 10 months of 21 and, sorry, of 2020 and um, 12 months of 21, the global technology standards made progress equal to seven years if the pandemic hadn't happened. So in two years, it became seven times. Yeah. Well, that's, if it stopped there, life is easier. But then, Einstein's famous thing that, you know, compounding continues to surprise people. So now they're, just think of it like, it's a seven, if we put in decade terms, 70 years versus 20 years. Two and seven don't sound that crazy apart. Think of a 20-year-old person, 70-year-old person. Something which has been happening for 70 years, that piece is very different. So when chat, 
the, the chat GPT came by and people like suddenly, my God, what is this? Or every technological breakthrough we're seeing is changing things in a way that people are just not able to grapple with it. There is the need for me to find the best sources to learn. So one thing which is different for me right now, and this might be an important point for our listeners, is that anybody who's taking free subscriptions, like people say, I go to CNBC. I said, do you pay 250 bucks a year? No, I said, then you're wasting your time. So free is like, uh, you know, what do businesses do? We do that, right? We, we give free articles, free research, free insights to lure people in. But can you imagine a customer who says, yeah, just take Alchemist's free services and I'm happy with it. They won't get anywhere. But people take free subscriptions and basically flood the inbox and they're happy with that. So I have about a dozen paid subscriptions. So I'm talking about McKinsey, which is not paid, but Economist, which is paid. There's Business Insider. There is um, CNBC, Fortune. I can go down that list. And um, then I try to get a whole bunch of insights from things in a very quick way. And Megan, hopefully you'll agree, and our listeners will agree that people who read a lot, they're able to learn, they're able to sift through things very quickly because they, in general, are better informed than people who are reading just much lesser. So would I love to learn more? Absolutely. Um, do I do all that I can do to learn very quickly and about many more things? Yes. but that. I'm knowledge insecure. But am I learning the right things? Should I go get somebody else who can, you know, wall the ocean for me faster and quicker and every second? So it's kind of like FOMO of a different kind. But yeah, you're right. It's um, anybody who uh, who wants to grow should be insecure about are they getting the right knowledge at the right time in a way that they can really kind of optimize and maximize. I don't have the right answer, but I try my darn best. Sorry for that word. Yeah, <laughs> learn as much about as many things which impact my business. And sometimes I feel that I'm the smartest man in the world because I learn so much to talk to people who make me look smart. And then exactly the same day or a day later, I meet somebody who makes me feel that, man, you don't know anything about the world. This guy knows everything. <laughs> so it's a um, fun journey, but I just love that situation. Like, you know, you're, there's some people like kids at a candy store, as they say, when I suddenly have 15 articles, I won't read all of them. I'm like, man, how to read all of this? But it's fun. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, I, I guess there's no way to learn everything. And to me, that kind of speaks to the need to surround yourself with people who are complimentary and not exactly like you. Um, people who can, you know, play to your weaknesses and, and your weaknesses are their strengths. So, Megan, if you can help me do that, I will personally pick you from wherever you are, bring you over and <laughs> and time with you and learn about it and then pay you whatever you can ask for. So yeah, that's probably easier said than done. <laughs> again? I said, I'm sure it's easier said than done. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, but but I try to speak to people. It, I'm, I'm really opportunistic when it comes to talent and expertise and people who I can poach and bring. Whenever we see somebody who really is a mover and shaker and gets it. I have this thing called this person gets it. I mean, this talk of scientific, it's not a real word, but they actually get what matters. So I say they get it. Yeah. And I always try to be very blatant in poaching them. Um, yeah. But there are people who are happy where they are and they don't see opportunities for us. But many come over and they love what we're doing. And hopefully it will continue to grow. I mean, we want to be a Fortune 500 company. 
We're halfway there. I say halfway there because of the growth trajectory, not because of our size. <laughs> we are barely 50 million, but we keep saying that because if we keep the trajectory, then we're halfway there. Yeah. It's like a hockey stick. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the power of compounding, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. The most difficult part. So lastly, as a finance leader, an entrepreneur, or maybe when you look at your clients, what... What is keeping you up at night? What worries you about what's around the corner that people just aren't seeing? I think his name is Nassim Taleb, Taleb, who wrote this book called The Black Swan. Very smart guy. Um, the, the term became mainstream after he wrote that book. The COVID-19 was supposedly a once-in-a-century event. But then we had a once-in-a-century event in 2001 when 9-11 happened. And we had the last financial crisis was some sort of um, black swan event because the sheer magnitude of that was pretty crazy. And then we keep having the cryptos and things like that, which people are not thinking about. So what is that we're not thinking about, which can come and hit us? That That's what worries me. Like, you know, you can prepare for, people say, control the controllables. But if con- uncontrollables are too many, then that strategy is not a good one anymore. So you're looking for what is coming from that field. And that that is what keeps me really concerned about our expertise and our clients. So easy example, right? COVID-19 came, half our clients died. I mean, not physically, but the businesses. Yeah. And you have a huge bill, which is uncollectible. You know them, you know they actually can't pay for it. What do you do? You run into a crisis or how do you survive? There were people inside the company who thought we won't survive this because that's the wrong leverage. Your client base is small businesses and they're dying every day. Luckily, we have emerged strongest, way stronger than we ever have been. However, I'm pretty certain that's not the norm. So if something happens which the world couldn't have prepared for, regardless of how much oxygen the governments are willing to pump, luckily we are US-based and we got a lot of oxygen from the governments, but the world wasn't as easy for most businesses. So when I'm in India right now, it's a whole different world. I mean, you have been here, you know, people don't, react the same way, they don't respond the same way, it's a different pace, but still they're crazy such as stories. So how do we have the magic uh, oracle insight that what's going to happen tomorrow, which nobody's thinking about, which is not so that we can make the most money or become the greatest, but so that we can warn our clientele for what is coming their way. Yeah. Oddly enough, Megan, the level of unawareness among SMBs I call it mind-boggling. It's just that people don't read. People don't want to learn new things. The thing that learning gets over when college is done or master's is done. And they want to use a rapidly depleting supply of knowledge in a world where knowledge is doubling every year, maybe even sooner. So kind of a long-wound answer, but to make it more crisp, it's like what we don't know is the next big thing, like chat GPT. No one knew that. Suddenly, deal with it, buddy. We know about crypto, deal with it. COVID-19, deal with it. So what's coming down the pipeline which we don't know? And then how do we give that on-demand knowledge which people can comprehend and use? To me, the second one is a bigger problem because people are by and large unwilling to learn. Yeah, it's sad. Um, but, do you have a solution um, for that, Megan? No. Have a <laughs> no, I don't. I am sure I could make a lot of money if I did, but I don't. Anupam, thank you so much for being my guest today. 
Thank you. And I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Um, not to flatter you, but um, there are at least two questions you asked me. They were so pertinent for any leader, not only just people like me, that I was like, man, how come people don't ask this often? Yeah. Well, I appreciate I you. That. Yeah. Course, I'd love to connect with you about your offering sometime. I know this is a record part. You're going to edit this out that yeah. because you, you seem to have something which really is of massive interest to us. Yeah, absolutely. I would. I will definitely take you up on that offer and schedule a call outside of this one. A flight to India. We'll have some fun here. Okay, that would be awesome. <laughs> I miss it over there a lot. People over there, they're so innovative. And uh, like you said, it's a huge pool of talent that's very much untapped. Have you ever heard this term called Jugad? J-U-G-A-D? No. That's an actually Indian word, which is kind of, it's like you go from a strategy to tactics. You go from tactics two levels down and that's like a little crafty maneuver to solve a problem. And that word yeah. is so special that Harvard um, Business School and some other intellectual houses work to get it included in English dictionary. So it's part of English dictionary now. Wow. Um, that's so, so It's like uh, India is the word jugar. Yeah. In India. Find a way to get this done. I believe it. I mean, they're they're like so short on resources, but they come up with these super innovative ways to solve problems because of it. Yeah. And the way uh, the world leadership is changing, I think that the world is acknowledging that they're doing pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. And I do miss it over there. I will would love to fly over there and and, and meet with you. Sounds good. Let's start with California and keep moving. But okay. uh, thank you so much. It was great speaking with you and can't wait for our next round of conversation. Yeah, I definitely wish you and, and Occam's advisory all the best. And to all of our listeners, please tune in next week. And until then, take care. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personif. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personif can do for you by visiting personif.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personif. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personif.com. Thanks for listening.